Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast with your host, Darren Herman. This podcast explores the world of sports cards from a variety of angles. Being a hobbyist collector for over 30 years, a professional software investor and angel investor in and around the card space, and a proud father who is raising children who collect and appreciate sports cards. If you want to learn more about Midlife Crisis Cards, head over to midlifecrisiscards.com where you can read his journey to card collecting, his history, and find some awesome individual cards to purchase from his personal collection. Or check out our brand new product, the Cardboard Box, a personalized and hand-selected box of cards that arrive at your front door. On the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast, we explore the convergence of Darren's worlds in the sports card industry, where hobby meets business. Without further ado, Please meet our host, Darren Herman, a.k.a. at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter. And hello, it's Darren Herman, a.k.a. Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram or dherman76 on Twitter. Welcome to my first official podcast. Well, it's kind of a podcast. I created the Midlife Crisis cards community, which is completely free to join and open to anyone in the hobby who is kind, nice, and wants to help others learn. We've got a great group of over 50 awesome collectors on the mailing list, and each month we come together over Zoom to discuss a wide range of topics. We've covered everything from tax issues on your card collection to how to insure cards, Prism versus Select, WNBA cards, collection management software, and beyond. Well, we recorded the most recent Midlife Crisis Cards community, and I wanted to play it for anyone to learn from. There are some incredible insights in it. We cut the session down to 45 minutes, as they usually run around 90 minutes. I hope you enjoy it, and thanks for all who attended that contributed all of this great content. If you're interested in joining us for our December session, please head over to midlifecrisiscards.com and join our newsletter or mailing list thing. From there, you'll get an email from us and we'll get you on the list. Also, if you're a LeBron or MJ fan, be sure to check out midlifecrisiscards.com on Black Friday. Just saying. Okay, let's do this. In a second, you'll start hearing the audio from our Midlife Crisis Cards community session from November 2020. Ping me on Twitter or Insta with your feedback. Enjoy. Now let's dive in. Let's Yamwax, welcome, and uh, let's dive in and, and uh, you know tackle the first question, which is in no particular order. Um, again, I'm not here to answer the questions. I'm here to moderate. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're if you're comfortable, feel free to speak up. If you're just here to listen, that's cool too. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, Many of you have been here multiple times, and so you're more comfortable. First time, uh, folks. It's a friendly cloud. We already talked about the ground rules, so there's no right or wrong answers. Everyone has their opinion, and that's what makes this all this, this hobby all great. And so, first topic: in five years, will base cards have value? So maybe I'll, 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 I'll I'd love to flip it to someone who wants to talk about that. But what I'd love to maybe also ask the question of for someone who's been collecting for a while. Can someone give us a little history of the value of base cards in previous you know, decades? You know, does someone have any background there and, and, and knowledge? I mean, they were never this high, you know, so I think that's kind of a starting point. Um, I mean, people call like the 90s the junk wax era and, you know, and they even, but they even talk about the inserts from the 90s being junk, you know, and, and low priced in the, in the recent years other than like the Jordans and stuff like that. But the, the cards themselves, I mean, the base cards, 
you never saw like even a base rookie. You know, I was talking about it in a video that I did, like the Shaquille O'Neal base rookie was like a $10 card. You know, it wasn't like a, you never had a base rookie being two, three, 400 or in the case of Luca, like a thousand dollars or something like that. It was like, it never got that high for a base card. So I think it may be different now just because so many people are getting introduced to it when the cards are already higher value to begin with. The wax price is higher too, you know, when, when we, we look at those things. And I think a lot of us don't realize how quickly that price goes up. Uh, I spoke to someone the other day, actually, just as an example to give you guys an idea. I don't know where, if you're buying wax and when you're buying it along the chain, but since we're a group, you know, sharing stuff, yeah. I spoke to a friend of mine who bought clearly Donruss, which came out, you know, in the last couple of weeks. It's a product that mirrors the Donruss product that came out earlier in the year, which was already mirrored by Optic. It's weird. They have the same card designs, but they keep doing different effects on them. Uh, but this box was 20 cards a box. It was like, it was four cards per pack, five packs per box, or the reverse five cards, per, whatever. You got 20 cards in a box. Uh, and they're selling on Panini's website right now for $350 a box, I believe. And stores, the lowest I saw a store selling a box for was $300. Breakers are putting them at about $400 a box. But uh, I spoke to a friend of mine who ordered it from a distributor, not from Panini, from a distributor. And his box price on it was $60 a box. So to give you guys an idea, just, you know, let's peel back the curtain a little bit. 60 bucks a box I mean, we're talking an insane amount of, you know, movement even before it gets released. So I know it's saw Darren's great. Unreal. Right. I mean, it's, but the value now of the cards, the individual cards is inflated too. And I don't, I don't want to say inflated in like a real negative tone, but, but it's just matter That's of fact that, value. yeah, because yeah, the cards are worth more now because people have to spend more on the boxes, but uh, and that goes hand in hand and same with national treasures this year was, was an insane increase in the price of those boxes as well from the beginning. So it's a bit of a shocker, but I think because, so in back to the base card question, because the boxes for the most part are selling for so much more that it costs that much to open a pack. I think some of these cards will hold higher values than cards of the past, but it doesn't mean they're going to last forever at that level. The, the, um, the thing is, is the way I look at it is you look back to the 70s, 80s, even early 90s, when probably like a lot of us collected, there was no definition of a base card, right? Like it really didn't exist. Like, I don't know, we all collected a bunch of cards and sometimes you got a rookie one and it said rookie on it. And remember the old baseball ones had a little gold trophy on it and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's, it's a newer definition, at least to me. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody spoke like that about it. I think that with all these different inserts and and other parallels it's created the base card that really didn't exist you know yeah, and I mean, yeah. like that's the way i look at it I, I you know i don't even know that it was a base you know that's a base it was card. one it was just one that was it that yeah. was it that's what you got that's what you got but you know today you have all these these different inserts and numbered cards and i think that they're very inflated when you look at especially basketball since probably a lot of us like and collect basketball they just feel very inflated when you have to pay first year cards. I mean, Darius, Baisley, Prism, 10, you know, PSA 10 for over a hundred dollars is seems a bit crazy. He could be out of the league in, th in, in two years. It just doesn't make, 
it doesn't make much sense. So I think that people that like to collect or even invest, whatever it is, and I think we're all a bit of both maybe, but you got to, I think, really look at either the, I'm looking strictly like at parallel cards, numbered case hits, like things like that, that aren't, you know, all over the place. There won't be 10,000 of. And I think that's kind of like the way I've been thinking about buying new cards. I've had a lot of stuff think about this. And the thing that really gets me, or we talk about a lot, is just how many collectors, new buyers are coming into the market. Because when you look at cards, even let's say 2012 Prism, right? Like when those came out, I have boxes of that because I, I bought into a lot of that. Those base cards now, you know, base Magic Johnson PSA 10 sells for 250 bucks because that because the cases have risen in price because it was short print on demand. And I'm like, well, why, why, why would someone pay $250 for that? Or you know, a LeBron James 2017 Prism, 150 bucks when there's hundreds and hundreds of different options for LeBron James or Magic Johnson. And all I can get, we keep going is just, there's just so, the collector base is moving so rapidly and it's so easy now to get into it and buy something that the demand isn't keeping up. And if that just keeps up, even like second year Lucas and their price point or second year or cards that they seem like there's so many and it feels like the price is going to bottom out or, you know, it's just going to sink. But then if enough people just keep rising coming in every year after year, there'll never be enough until the Panini and Tops like starts overproducing again if they do that. I'm hoping they don't, but it looks like they might. So they'll just put out more products, product lines, I guess I should say, like they did this year. It's crazy amount of, it's got to be what guys, 30 different basketball sets. I don't know it's got to be a huge number so they may not increase too much of any particular set itself maybe prison the most but i think they'll continue to look for new ways like with donors clearly that may or may not have been on their roadmap when they started this year yeah they ran a lot of mosaic though too though i know they did like an extra one at the end i have a friend who's very in tune with what hits target and walmart and all that I don't do wax personally, so like this is out of my zone in purchasing you said it. That but about grading cards too, and all of a sudden you start grading cards. I want to have two graded cards now. Wow! <laughs> all of a sudden, I got two cards graded. That's insane. Yeah, maybe I'll buy wax someday. No, um, uh, but the but the thing that was striking about that is when that stuff first hit the mosaic, and I don't know if you guys bought it at all or remember when it first hit the Genesis cards or the, woo, these are going to be special. They're not numbered, but they're so rare. And then people were telling me they only made five. They only made eight. They only made 12. They only made 10. Like they're not numbered. So no one could know, but like, I have a handful of Thomas Bryant's cause he's some guy, he's a guy I collect. I have a handful of his, you know, and you can look on eBay and see, you know, 10 or 20 now of the same guy listed at the same time from different sellers because they just kept printing more and more of it. And so I don't, I don't know that they're really limiting themselves as much as maybe we hope. I mean, you look at the Luca card from the Luca Prism rookie. You look at the pop reports on the just the tens are at like fourteen thousand or fifteen thousand. They're like, you must have a hundred thousand of that card out there. Same. The supposed six-figure card that Rob Kardashian just hit, the Brady, that was a Genesis too, and people just overblow it big time. And I think that's the real danger. I, I believe 
in general, the market is wising up to base cards. You can see it and how quickly those prices dipped right now. Where I'm really concerned are about like the 30 different parallels that are available and how people are overpricing those when ultimately maybe one or two of them will truly matter in the long run. And the rest will sort of wash out as like, you know, a little bit better than the base. I would agree with that, especially when you apply it to mosaic this year, it was, it was crazy to me to see what some of the, the greens and the pinks and all of the retail par parallels were going for at first and, and still in certain players. I mean, if you look, if I, I do a lot of buying on Facebook, so if you look in those rooms where people are selling and they're doing fire sales and you look at the comment thread, I mean, almost always it's greens, it's pinks, it's all the retail mosaic parallels. So that just leads me to believe that they produce so much of that stuff. And a shop told me that in the last couple of years, Panini's really gotten um, with Prism in particular, um, pretty overzealous in terms of print runs on the Prism basketball product compared hey. to 2012. Does anyone have knowledge on the Fleer Retro set? Because I was just looking at a box of that, and it looks like it's about $3,000 for, I want to say maybe 50 cards. Um, and I know, and I feel like those are pretty short print, and that there's a lot of rare cards, a lot of like the rare PMGs come out of that, but I don't know enough about that set to know like if that's like what what's in that set or if it's worth, or if that's like a good price or anything, but I've just seen it pop up recently. They have some autographs in that too, like Jordan and LeBron. I don't know about the price of the box, but I haven't bought one. So I don't know if it's a good price. Got it. All right, so let's shift. So we, uh, we spoke a bunch about base cards and value. And we're going to go into grading well. This was a couple of questions in grading. First of which is, when should we use PSA versus BGS for grading? And then the opinions on that. I'm sure SGC would be welcome in conversation there too. And then, you know, maybe bundling in too, will PSA remain the top grading company in five to 10 years? Or should you think about diversifying where you have your cards graded from in case PSA or somebody else um, drops? So anyone have a perspective on when to go to PSA or BGS or SGC? You know, when, you know, why do you send your cards to PSA versus somewhere else? At least for me, it's always been, you know, when I see the value of cards, PSA generally has highest value. And, you know, you could have a PSA 10 and an SGC 10, and that SGC is going to be minimal 10, uh, sorry, 20% less than the PSA 10. And so if I'm going to spend the time and get my cards graded and I'm going to pay, you know, I might as well try and go for the highest value uh, creator and the lowest value creator, regardless of aesthetic. And I know a lot of people like SGC aesthetic over PSA, purely thinking on value. Um, you know, I probably lean into, uh, the PSA, but frankly, I like BGS because I like the four scores that you get. And that gives you a lot more transparency into, uh, why a card is graded a certain way, uh, versus PSA where you just get a score. And I think the half scores and BGS are more interesting as well. Than the whole scores that a PSA would get. Anybody else? Hey, Darren, it's it's Russ here. So I mentioned this. I mentioned this a couple of calls ago that I sent some cards into PSA as a, a little bit, a little bit of a learning experience. I paid the seventy-five dollar uh, express rate to get ten specific cards shipped back to me. There were seven nines, two eights, and a ten. 
And with that in mind, I think I'll be taking a closer look at those nines. And I think BGS would have been a better, you know, it, it's a it's a learning curve, honestly. But if you really what did you learn? What's the learning here? Well, so my BGS 9.5 would be more valuable than my PSA 9. And if I can spot why PSA went nine and then basically trial this over again with BGS, then I can send those cars that would that I know in the future would be getting a PSA nine to BGS for a potential nine point five. That that's my learning experience. Do I know why all of them got what they did get? No, but I, I see it better than I did prior. I will say that. Like I definitely did learn from setting those in and getting them back the way I did. The, the, I wish they had the individual scores that you get from BGS, uh, like printed on, on the top of the graded card. That would be helpful as part of the learning experience. But anyways, that's my, that's my two cents. Um, I definitely don't regret sending them in. I'm glad I did. I think in the future, I think BGS has a place. I just, my nines and the BGS 9.5, there is a price gap. There's a value gap there. And if I'm grading cards strictly to resell them, in the future, I will, uh, I'll do BGS for some of those cards, as long as I can, you know, it's, it's honestly, it's, you have to have an eye for it and it's a learning experience. So Russell's too humble and we'll never say it, but a shout out to alternate insights, which is a fractional ownership research platform. That's Russell and that's what he runs. So uh, he provides a lot of our market data for all of us. I'll have perspective on. Yeah, I will, uh, jump in. Hey gang. I'm Zach. So I have here, this is my most prized card. It's a Kyler, if you can see it well, it's a Kyler gold vinyl. Uh, this is a BGS 8 Auto 10. And so it has a sort of, you know, very obvious issue on the top of the card, which you can't quite tell from here, but it's sort of puckering at the top. And so, you know, this I think is a great, example of why you'd send this card to BGS instead of PSA, they, they break down all of the subgrades. Here they said centering's nine and a half, corners are nines, surface is 9.5, but the edge is a seven. Wow. And so, you know, this card, obviously it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's one of five, so it has value. Um, but I think it even has more value than if it just went to PSA because it broke down exactly why this card, you know, isn't a 10. And then there's also a, a grade for the auto itself, which I think has value as well. Did you send that in yourself or did you get it second? I did not. Quick, quick story with this one. So love Kyler. You know, I, I think he's sort of the future of the league. I saw this card. I fell in love with it. I saw it on eBay and I, and it just wasn't really moving. Cause it's just a bizarre card, a, a, like a BGS eight for a card that came out last year is just sort of strange. So I sort of begged, borrowed and, and stole to get it. I ended up trading. I had a AJ Brown gold vinyl at a, at a, at a five traded that it was still out of my price range. So I convinced two of my buddies to throw in cash. And then I just sort of did this combo trade plus cash and I was able to pry it from the owner. Nice. And, you know, while the whole football market's taken a huge hit since I bought this in September, you know, Kyler has been balling. So I'm, I'm hopeful that, that this card will continue to go up. Zachary. I, I love that, that, uh, you went for the eight and that's in my opinion, that's the perfect place to go for a BGS or in the really special cards. Cause a gold vinyl, 
I would barely care what the grade is. The card itself is just so limited and so special. Cards like RPAs, you see some of the biggest cards ever sold, like the recent Giannis and uh, the recent LeBrons. Those weren't 10s. They were in BGS holsters. And nobody cares what the grade is practically because mm-hmm. it's all about them being that unique, incredible card. And that and that's where I where I see BGS being often used in RPAs because they're the thicker card and people generally sort of like the way that they fit. I don't have a personal preference myself, but it does seem like a lot of people like BGS for RPAs just for the aesthetic. For sure. Totally. I'll chime, in. I'll, I'll chime in here for a second because I'm, I'm new. Guys, nice to meet you. This is really fun. I, I'm really passionate about grading cards. And the one thing that frustrates me the most about the entire process is how arbitrary it is and how the fact that these things are still graded by humans so a, a prime example of that, you know, we, we just, and I forgot his name and he disappeared off the same part of the screen, but his example of sending in 10 cards, getting one 10, uh, eight nines and one eight, you know, I, I had a, I went and bought, I, I love to buy raw because I think I've got an eye for grading, getting them graded and then flipping. And I think that it gives me an opportunity to buy bigger cards with house money rather than having to, to open up and, and break the bank. So I went out prior to the massive rush and bought what I felt was damn near a PSA 10 Brady rookie, tops Bowman Chrome, sorry, Bowman Chrome rookie. And it gorgeous, gorgeous surface, gorgeous edges, gorgeous corners. I subbed at 10 day, came back seven, and I was devastated. I'm like, this is unreal. So I cracked it out of the case, subbed it again, got an eight. And I'm like, I'm still upset about this. Cracked it a third time, subbed it, got a 10. Wow. And, and so I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, you guys are the publicly traded company for making this happen. And I've now done this three times. And I know that's not the case for everything, but it is, it is just a little frustrating how there isn't more consistency around specifically cards that I believe they're pop controlling. Michael, how do you feel about, can you weigh in or do you have to avoid the topic? Okay. So, so, so for some people probably know, but I am the lead appraiser for PSA. And um, so I don't necessarily work for PSA. I still have my own company, but I appraise all the collectibles that come in, autographs, cards, what have you. So Jake, this is something that, yeah, re- recent, well, last six to 12 months, I'm hearing a lot of this, it's happening. And so you know, they're trying to remedy the situation. Unfortunately, that doesn't help you or anybody else that, that you know, that's had the problem. Additionally, you know, now they have um, these, these scanners for certain value cards, they will take a picture. And so they're supposed to know if that same card gets pushed back to them. You know, I don't know if that's fully up and running or not, or what the deal is, but that's just kind of what I've heard. That's pretty cool. I mean, it, it is, it just, it's really interesting, right? Cause, cause it just, you know, and I, I love grading and I, I solely grade with PSA. It's just really interesting how there can be some irregularities at times. And obviously it's a human process, but it almost feels like with how far tech's advanced, maybe it shouldn't be a human process anymore. I don't, yeah. I don't see Kevin here, but he was supposed to be, but uh, he's been here in previous ones. Kevin's working on a startup that does digital based grading and, uh, using a whole bunch of techniques to scan a card and then identify and assess the card. And he's, his grading, I've seen some cool things. You know, he's had his technology go up against the PSA couple of graders and uh, he's been fairly accurate with the technology so far. And so uh, maybe next time we'll have him here and he can talk about that. But uh, he, uh, I don't see him on the screen, but if he is. 
Captain speak. What's his uh, startup called? Called Genement. G-E-N-A-M-I-N-T. It's, it's still quiet and obviously, <laughs> uh, but he's working on it. And he's, you know, he's, he's getting it to where to a point that uh, all of us hopefully can use it pretty soon. Uh, but I think that's really mm-hmm. interesting. Then it opens up an entire market for the raw cards. You don't necessarily need a PSA or Beckett or or SGC stamp on the card. You know, I could feel pretty comfortable, Zach, if you're selling me a card and I can assess it in, in like 10 seconds or less. And, you know, I know that I'm getting a good card from you. Not that I don't trust you, <laughs> but uh, I just met you. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, you know, we could scan it, agree to pay, you know, the 10 cents or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, know that when that comes to me, it's going to be a pretty damn good card. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. Because, Frankly, something eBay should just buy and scan the card. I think that's huge. Like, I don't. Like I, I don't grade cards at all. I've n- never been a fan uh-huh. of it because I, I just like having raw cards in, in general. But the the huge advantage of it, and, and to Corey's point earlier too, like I wouldn't care if it's an eight or a seven or whatever. If it's you know that limited of a card, it's number to five. Who cares? There's only four other people with them in the world. I think when people grade one of ones, it's very strange because you still have the worst condition card in the world at the same time <laughs> as the best. Yeah. You know, like I, so I don't get why you're grading it at all, but. But the great part of that is you knew at least in buying it, Zach, like you knew about the card, even though you weren't next to it, which is really nice having a professional opinion when you're buying on the internet. So I totally understand doing it that way for those reasons, but I still need to be enlightened on sending your own cards in for grading if you're not going to sell them. I still don't understand that. (laughs) That part I don't get. Well, I know it's a later topic, but I feel like everyone in this room has probably sold a card for north of, you know, 500 to a thousand bucks only to have the market take a turn and the buyer on eBay return it uh, with absolutely, even if it's a PSA graded card, I feel like something like that startup could easily cut down on fraud. I think eBay needs to change policies probably is the bigger problem. Well, that there. too. I mean, that too. We're going to get there. Hold off four minutes on that. Let's go. Will PSA remain the top grading company in the next five, 10 years or from a collecting strategy, you know, maybe PSA is, maybe PSA isn't. So should you be also buying VGS and SPC and or other uh, types of graded cards as well, if you believe that PSA will not be, you know, the premier grading card uh, company in, in the future? So what's there? Yeah, well, I um You're big in SGC, Tom. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of SGC. I've switched back to PSA. I went to SGC when PSA had the big delay. Uh, I, I buy and sell. I feed my habit with selling the hobby. Um, and SGC's rates just are so low that the only thing that would make it what better, better to use them was the timeliness. And maybe for some low dollar cards, because I get a, a pretty good rate because I, I do bulk submissions. But I have graded probably like 800, well, I have four, 592 that are about to be sent to me. And before that, I graded about 300 with SGC. But I'm looking at some of the bigger dollar card. The problem is on the smaller dollar cards, the price difference is not nearly as much. So it's, I think it's worthwhile to go with SGC if you can get it three, four months faster. The bigger dollar cards, you're talking about five, 50, 60% less than PSA. And I just don't know how long it will take for that to change where they get quote, like how long will it take for them to inch closer? Because more and more people, people still just use, it's like a, it's like a wheel that just keep perpetuates itself as you see that price difference. Like for me, now I'm sending bigger dollar cards to PSA now because it just doesn't make sense to me to go through SGC. And if 
I'm the common guy and that's what everybody's doing. I just don't, when does it get to go to, when does that change? Yeah, I think you need something like Genement coming in and making digital grading a thing that makes people less needing grading to sell cards and of transactional value there. And then the grading part is really for more older cards and maybe some bigger dollar cards that you might be worried about counterfeits or something that comes up like that. But even then, I still don't know why, I don't know how SGC gets or the new uh, CCG gets in there. I just don't. I would just yeah. ask the, the whole crowd. I mean, when you analyze businesses that are competitors all in the same market, the one that's typically sticks out is the one that has a competitive advantage over the others. And I just can't for the life of me figure out what PSA's competitive advantage is. So if, if anyone has a good answer to that, I'd love to hear it. I mean, I think uh, this is Jake, by the way. Hey guys, first time joining. Um, I mean, I think PSA very much acts like the incumbent in the market and that their only competitive advantage is that the marketplace currently dictates that their grades are worth more. Um, but like from a business standpoint, I don't think there is anything that makes them special. And if anything, that would be the opportunity for a BGS and a lot of things that folks already shared here, which is like, okay, they offer a nine and a half, they offer subgrades, like that's a differentiator to PSA. Um, if that pulled enough people to say, hey, I prefer BGS, great. And then it would be on PSA to say, all right, do I want to still act like the incumbent who's not going to change and just, you know, stick with my ways? Or, you know, what would stop PSA from rolling out subgrades or nine and a half um, grades if they lost a material amount of business to BGS, but oftentimes incumbents, you know, tend not to react that way. And that's what allows disruptors to pass them. But I don't think, you know, from an operational pricing standpoint, there's nothing, you know, special that they're doing more. It's that the market says a PSA 10 is worth more than a, you know, PGS 10. That's a great point. The only, the only advantage they PSA has is they communicate. I don't know about SGC because I haven't sent anything, but I've sent now a lot of cards into PSA and BGS. And you say, if you ever do that, like you send a card into BGS, you don't even get an email they receive the fucking box. So like all of a sudden I call them up once and I'm like, you guys have had something since August and I've heard zero. Do you have it? Because FedEx said they delivered it. Like there's nothing. But PSA now, because I just sent a bunch of boxes this week, has now a different protocol where you have to put a, a label on the outside of your box and yeah. they scan it in. So like literally I sent it in, whatever, Monday, it was there Wednesday, it was scanned in Wednesday, and I knew they had it. So now you at least have some level of comfort. Now that has nothing to do with the business. I'm just saying purely from a standpoint of like, can somebody tell me what the fuck is going on? At least there's some information you can log on the website and see that your box is there, how many cards it has, and you know, gives you that information. But that's not a good reason for, you know. This is a little bit of a tangent, but still on the same topic. So I apologize. So this is not, uh, I don't mean to come negative to anyone who, is, who runs group submission. So there's an opportunity, what's become popular are sort of these group submission processes where Scott, I'm making this up, Scott doesn't do this to my knowledge, but Scott could run a group sub where all of us send, you know, 5, 10, 15, 50, 100 cards to Scott's house or his work. And then he's, puts them all together and then submits a batch. And by submitting a batch, ideally he gets price breaks that we all benefit from. So if we were to go direct to PSA, maybe it's $75 a card, but through Scott, it could be 50. What's amazing to me from purely a, a, a collector and a business perspective 
people are sending thousands and thousands of cards to group submission people with purely their Instagram address and that's it. Like there's no contract that you're signing. There's no legal anything. There's like no relationship between me and whoever's group submitting. Uh, and none of us are submitting $5 cards. You know, we're submitting. It turned out really bad. Did you? I mean, a lot went around. I'm sure everyone probably saw it if they're on Instagram, but there were several people that did that, sent them in. And after I was nine months or a year, nothing had happened. And the guy had claimed that he had submitted them all and never got them back. Turned out he didn't submit any of them. He yeah. took the cash and just went and spent it. And he still sat on their cart. So, yeah, no, you're totally right there. And I mean, it's like, you have to trust the people if you're going to send them. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's amazing to me that this like exists without any like, I don't know, these are like thousands and thousands of dollars of submissions each. And we're just sending it to someone we met on Instagram completely with all just your Instagram handle and expecting to get that back. And it's happened. Like I've done that. I do it. <laughs> I've done it twice <laughs> and it's worked. Yeah. But like, I, every time I do it, I'm like, where in the world does this like actually like, like what other industry has this like blind leap of faith? My concern was like, if, if I send in a Jordan rookie and you send in a Jordan rookie and three other people send in a Jordan rookie to the same guy and he submits them all at once, how do you know which is mine and his? And they're supposed to keep them in the same order. But like, how do you even know at that point if you're, yeah. you're getting back the card that you sent in when it gets mixed in a group submission? How about you know, um, funny? Darren, were you happy with the grades you got back from the group sub? One, uh, so I was complaining uh, this morning about something I got back. Um, like but uh, it was like one ten and two eights. And I thought the eights were better than the ten, so I don't get it. And one of the eights was literally packed brush, like right out of the pack into a card saver, going right to. Uh, but as someone said, you know, kaboom cards are not. Those can scratch easy, maybe, or you know. You know, they're tough cards to grade. So who knows? Um, but one thing, Darren, to, to piggyback off of that, because PSA just cracked down on this exact problem. Um, they actually, like, I guess they pooled the ability to group sub and limited it to, like, I think there's 100 people that actually have a, quote, unquote, license to group sub. And so, like, I only use a group sub because the pricing is so much better. And so if you guys have never submitted, you should look at Jared Landris and what he's done with uh, Jim Mint and Waxpack because that guy's a tech guy. He's actually built into PSA's API. And so when I send him an order, he sends it to PSA and then I get a text message as my cards move through the, through the process. It's incredible. Did you put his info in the chat? That's super That's pretty incredible, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do that. I'll put the Facebook group for sure. PC okay. Sports card has a similar system, but yeah. you have to go on their website to figure it out. But and I think they're they're pretty good too. Yeah, I've used so, them as well, and I've used KK Sports cards, who's a little more wonky than. I have a PSA innovation to mention, and that's their master sets. It's kind of a weak sauce innovation, but I think it does give them an advantage and entrenchment of sorts because a lot of us have mentors in the hobby, so your highest level collectors flow down. I think to the to the additional collectors and a lot of people really like the master set feature at PSA. They're trying to get the master set of all the major Babe Ruths or whatever master set they're going after. And so I think that's actually a startup opportunity for somebody or, or a feature to add to another startup would be to have an agnostic master set collection that you could register across all like three to four major grading companies. 
because um, the master sets keep what a master set PSA. Yeah, master set is you can register with the uh, PSA publishes master sets. So like the Pokemon first edition base 1999 set, I think 13 people have registered a complete set with PSA in a PSA 10. And folks are graded based on like how many of the, or they get a point total based on how many of the cards that they filled out in the master set and uh, they're ranked in order on there. So people are always striving to like climb the ladder of that master set on PSA's website. And so there's all kinds of master sets, you know, you're, like I said, the top 10 Babe Ruth cards might be a master set, the complete set of 1948 Bowman or something. So I have a question. Um, people try to achieve. If you, if you use their group submissions, PSA, how many people uh, on the master use more than and they validate one that they own those cards. Um, service provider? Cause I've used two in my experience, but I just, I think there's, there, I, I like the gem mint concept, but I think at least in my case, I'm not so the loyalty to the group subber is it's less, less about that and more about the convenience of when their deadlines are, because if I have cards that I need to get out and get into the submission process, I'm going to go with whoever's kind of got one open. Um, and I know some of them do rolling submissions, but I'm just curious if, if anybody's used more than one. I used three. So I have one PC sports card is, is my like hundred plus order for PSA. Uh, Dusty, I forgot his last name, but this guy Dusty is my BGS guy because he has the best price on BGS. And then uh, Sappy Sports Cards is for PSA. Like if I have maybe between zero and 30 cards I want to send in because he can get them. He has a consignment deal with this guy who I really like. And he also has a has very good attention to detail with like looking at the cards and telling me like what how they're going to grade and all that stuff. Sorry, what are those three names once again? One of them is PC Sports Card is the guy is the bulk submission. My BGS guy is Subhub or his name's Dusty, and the other guy who I just who the who's like a smaller submission for PSA who I can also consign with is a Sappy Sports Card for PSA. A friend of mine submits through DK Card Seven on Instagram. Uh, apparently, the guy lives like right next to the Dallas operation of BGS. So he walks the cards over as opposed to mailing them. So there's a lot of savings in the insurance of the back and forth to the group submitter and then to you. So he literally goes there, drops them off and then goes back and picks them up. So while I submitted with my friend directly, those two cards that I had at the same time, he had sent out a bunch of cards through D DK cards and the DK cards ones came back a month earlier. <laughs> so wow. on the same level submission because it didn't go through all the mail stuff. And then because I think it walked through the front door, uh, so to speak, I, I think they, they maybe moved it up in the line a little bit. So yeah. Sappy also lives next to BGS. So he does the same thing. Makes I sense. Used the, uh, I used a guy. Um, I used a guy in uh, to do PSA and the same thing. He walks it over. Which, for me, doing the first time made me feel more comfortable. And uh, so far, the twenty-day submission I got back, but it was from August. And the forty-five day, still don't have it. But it was still a little bit uncomfortable when it's not. I think Darren, when when you started this off, is right. Like it's still so uncomfortable to have cards out there, and you just don't even know. He sends me a picture. I got pictures of my cards, but. And I think, you know, you guys brought it up the same point, which is that 
you just don't know if he swap. He may have a card himself and just swap it out. Like, you know, I got on a FaceTime with him and, you know, just to see him face to face and talk to him. He said he's not a collector, but then I see him at shows. I don't know. He's a nice guy. I think he's probably doing a good job, but he literally walks it over. So you do save that time and maybe he has a good relationship, but I can't like, tell so far. I feel like we all used to are we all have like diamond guys. We all have like, guys. like <laughs> the one thing I'll add though on this topic is we you guys talked about kind of do you use multiple? I've only ever subbed through Jared because I think it's his full time job. Well, I know he's a developer on top of it, but he submits every week and goes above and beyond. He does a live stream like this every other week on Wednesdays, where he literally you go on and you just ask him, "Where's my order?" And he's like, "Well, it's in the system, but here's what I know about." average times of 20 days and 10 days. And it's just, I don't know. I think communication is key. That being said, I have 650 cards sitting at PSA and no idea when I'm going to get them back. So. All right. So it's, it's uh, just before nine ten. So what I want to do is, is move into selling and uh, best practices and buying and selling high, uh, high value cards. So this is sort of a combination topic, which is, you know, for those of us who are not just buying, but we're also selling cards, what are sort of, the best methods of listing cards, you know, whether that's, you know, how do you literally list your cards? Are there technologies you're using for collection management listing? Um, or do you have favorite places because you recognize higher value uh, from, you know, do you get higher values on ComC than eBay? I'm making that up. I don't know. Do you, uh, someone mentioned their Facebook group buyers, you know, Chris, that's actually pointing at you. Um, you know, what, how, like, you know, what, what are people like share the love? Like what's, what's, what's everyone's recipe for selling their cards? Uh, and I'm curious and then I'll, I'll run a poll in the background to see where, what people use. So I'll be working on a cool poll, but who wants to kick it off with, uh, how they sell? I, I, I will, I guess I'll kick it off with what I enjoy. Um, and I said this in the previous one. So we've got basketball card guy amongst us and, and he runs a couple of other. Uh, Instagram handles, including $5 cards and $10 cards. And he literally will say he's going live. And, you know, we get, unless you have notifications turned on, you will not get the $10 or $5 card because they sell out. And uh, he does it all through Instagram. And, you know, that's John is a basketball card guy. And so I, I like that as a, as a buyer. The hard part though, is you can't decide whether you want the card. You just have to commit to one. Because if you, if you think about it for more than four seconds, someone else is going to beat you. And, uh, it's, it's nice game, you know, game logic that you built in to sell your cards. Creating <laughs> urgency. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I actually started those accounts because I, I just wanted to have like a virtual $5 and $10 deal box. Like I, I bring boxes to shows. And because the shows weren't happening, I was like, Oh, I'll just make an Instagram account where I'll post the stuff there. And as people want it, they can buy it. I, I honestly didn't expect, I, I had a lot of buildup to it. I promoted it for a couple of weeks before launching. And I got like 300 followers on the $5 card account before I had a single photo up. And then when I started posting them, like within five or 10 seconds, they sold uh, immediately. And now I'm like through 700 cards on the $5 one and like 300 on the $10 one so far in like two months. Now it's like, I got to go back. I got to source more cards through it. Like I have enough in the collection, but I just have to go through and really, you know, splice it out. But part of that was, um, and I would say this just in general for folks, 
part of it is about being relevant in what you're posting. So it's not just how you post it or where you post it. It's also posting the right thing at the right time. And people even commented on that, on that account because you know, like it was the playoffs. And so when Bam goes up and rejects Jason Tatum, the three next cards I posted were Bam out of Bay of cards, you know? So, and they sold immediately because people were like, did you see that jam, you know? So it's just relevant cards at that point. And so instead of trying to jump onto eBay and then watch, you know, a card that would end in three days, they can buy the card right now, you know, on that account. And so, so remaining relevant, I think is a big thing. The only other thing I would recommend overall, and not just for those accounts is good photography is so key. And we all know this because we want to see the detail and what we're buying. If it's, especially if it's not graded. And I, I really don't have many graded cards and so when it's raw, people really want to see the detail of it to know, you know, is that corner a little wonky or what's going on with that card? And so there were like 12 copycats of my $5 card account within a few days of me launching it, but none of them had really high quality photographs. And it, and I think that really has set mine apart, you know, I think in one of the big ways. Yeah, and, uh, maybe you have some insight on this. I know some additional tools that are coming out to help power sellers something my hobby point of sale is, is an example. Does Loop have any plans, Darren, to do something like this? I mean, Instagram has been an amazing tool for exactly what you just mentioned, but. Um, yeah, Loop, I mean, I can't, I mean, I can always speak so much, but for Loop, it's right now, it's, you know, if any of you have downloaded the Loop app, if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's in the iOS store now, but it's not out for Android, but will be soon. It's, it was originally created for breakers. And so, it allows you to download the app and you can view all different breaks that are happening. And then one interface, watch the stream and transact within the interface. And then we're going to release some more fun uh, features that allow you to, you know, trade cards with other folks in the same break and buy cards from folks, et cetera. But that's coming. It, there's no reason why you can't use it to do video commerce to sell your cards. Um, there are some breakers that are selling individual cards on the stream. I think Ryan. I don't know if Ryan's in here still and bought some, um, but the, uh, you know, it could be a breaker on and he's got a whole bunch of wax and you can fix your wax, but you can also have a couple of graded cards or whatever and just sell those as well. And a couple of breakers and we have them and those, it uses Apple Pay. So you've got Apple Pay baked directly into uh, the streams. So you don't need like you have to do on Instagram and go to Venmo or PayPal and do good, like all that stuff. It's monthly. I've found Tom C to be useful to me and i find that it's useful in ways i don't expect it like i'll just set prices and i'll forget that i have cards over at tom c and all of a sudden i'll wake up in the morning with an email and a card is sold and i kind of love that and i have to do nothing and for whatever reason they get a bad rap i think they get a bad rap because of the user interface and their experience you know can be well <laughs> you know, can be fixed but i found i've cleared quite a few cards on tom c and uh uh, they've done a good job. And then from buying, I find that they are the best shippers as well. Other than some of you who I bought parts from, you know, ComC has like their packaging and the way they ship with the little receipt in the card, like it's phenomenal. And when I'm logging the cards into my own system and I get it, I have all the information I need there from ComC. So I think they've done a really good job. And then the other one that I like too, and, and Scott's been talking about this, chatting a lot is my slab. One, because the fee is low, it's like 1% right now. And uh, in the buying experience, the shipping is built in. So if you if you 
you know, if you offer the card for 125 bucks, that's all in. You're only paying a 1% uh, fee and you don't have to worry about shipping and handling insurance on top of that. Um, and so it makes it super clean. I don't know how you survive. <laughs> I study many marketplaces in my day job. I don't know how you survive on a 1% fee. I don't think that's sustainable. Um, but, uh, you know, they, uh, they, they, you know, they can clearly upgrade their interfaces, but it's, uh, it's been a pretty good buying. Advantage because eventually they will change their fee and then therefore the seller's prices will go up for sure, I think. But that it's a, I don't know if you guys have looked at it, it's, it's a really not a great interface, but it's simple. There's just slabs and slabs and slabs and you can go through it. They don't have everything and they don't have the best communication, but you know what you're getting. There's no returns, you know, so not a bad system at all. And it's fairly reasonable and you can negotiate sometimes. Some of the buyers will allow you to negotiate with them a little bit. So it's, it's, it's not a bad platform. It's just, it's just not visually appealing, let's say. Any, uh, anyone have any intel on what happened to the card ladder marketplace? Oh, is that gone? They just started it. Last time I logged in, I, I, I couldn't find it. I didn't know that existed. They took it down about a month ago. I think it was only live for a week or two. Uh, I'm not really sure what happened there. Interesting. Huh. I can ask Chris. I'll get Chris on next time. I was going to say, I'm sure they'd tell you they're, they're pretty transparent guys. They always answer any questions I have. So I'll show, I'll, I'll, end, I'll end this call. I'll show it to you. There's still, yeah. They're still posting on uh, Twitter. Card ladder is. Yeah. I, I think card ladders, you know, they're, their, their original business, you know, their data business is still there. It's the, yeah. whether or not they have the marketplace. Uh, they took it down. I'm looking at it now. I just logged in. They yeah. definitely the card ladder. Card ladder is fine. The marketplace was just beta for a couple of weeks and they're, they, they haven't told me a few people have asked them and they've kind of kept it tight to the vest. I don't know if it was just a pain in the butt to run or some other regulatory issue. I don't know. Anyone sold a slab on Starstock? I have not sold, I've not mailed anything to Starstock, except I bought a couple of things there and then have kept them in the vault or whatever they have, and then you can sell it from there. Um, but that's about it. What I do like about Starstock though, is the, the Starstock A, B, and C for non-graded cards. So they kind of assign grades arbitrarily to uh, raw cards. And in theory, a Starstock A is competitive with a DSA 9. In theory, I mean, we don't know, but I found that to be super helpful. Yeah, I think that's what that's that's what Genement will be able to do too, which is yeah. the same thing. That's pretty cool. How do you? How does everyone sell high dollar cards and like pricing? I have a question. Maybe please. I, so I have a silver prism, uh, LeBron James, two thousand twelve, and it's a PSA eight, and so it makes it really tough because we're talking like five ten thousand dollar difference between. You know, PSA 10, you know, PSA 10, PSA 9, they got $30,000 difference. PSA 9, PSA, I have no idea because I don't have any, um, anything to go off of what PSA is sold for, but I just don't even know where, you know, how, what to do. You know, at, like at, at the risk of getting booted from this call, I'd maybe send it to Probstein. Yeah, boot it. I mean, we talked about Probstein previously. Yeah, PWCC, same thing. Yeah. I don't even, to be fair, I don't even know if I want to sell that card right now, but that's just a good example of a card you have of these high dollar cards. How do you guys sell them? You know, because um, eBay seems crazy and PWCC seems like the best way, but then. Does anyone list with any of the auction houses? 
not Probstein and PWCC, but more like Goldens or Christine or Heritage or any of the traditional auction houses for those cards. I know Ryan would buy from them. When I saw those numbers that Golden's getting for their their cards, man, that's crazy. It makes me want to sell through there. Well, that's the whole thing with like in the art market with Sotheby's and and others, you know, the auction house can have an effect on the final value of your card because they attract certain buyers to the auction. And so Golden's, you know, what what they've done, you know, recently in the sports card space, certain buyers are coming to their auctions, therefore final values could go up in theory. Not doesn't guarantee, but in theory. Yeah, the, and the other thing is fractional sales. Like dibs will be a way for people to sell their cards. Um, yeah. Or like going through like selling, like you have large dollar cards, putting selling it to rally. So they, you know, going through there. Anyone use escrow for any large dollar sale cards? I always thought that was something needed in the market. You know, if I'm selling something to Chris, or more like I'm buying from Chris, and, uh, you know, it's a $1,500 card, never met the guy in my life, am I just going to send him 1500 bucks and hopefully a card ends up at my door? I don't know. But that's how it works. I agree. I think for, I, I think there's a big market there for, for trading cards too. Like a, like a stock, I mean, that's what StockX does for like shoes and stuff. I mean, they do it for cards now too. I wonder. Right. So it's a, a service like that where it's just that part of the service. Yeah. In Pokemon, there's a lot of middleman services showing up where the middleman, it's what you think it is, holds the money and holds the cards and finishes the deal, verifies everything. Um, I do know some people, I haven't had the opportunity to need to do an escrow.com or other escrow service yet, but I, I do know some people that just do contract-based sales and when it gets into the like six-figure range. All right, let's dive into technology startup in the sports card space. You know, where, where's their opportunity? You know, is anyone building anything? I don't know of anything being built. You know, where's the opportunity for the space? I'm curious. I'll start it. You know, my main pain point is is uh, collection management, which is, you know, I don't have one card. I have more like thousands of cards, but I don't know what the value is of every of those individual cards because they all sit in boxes. And so I had to create my own sort of collection management tool myself because hard ladder is awesome and so is market movers they're beautiful tools but they only tell you the top 10 or 13,000 cards in the market and i have some of those cards but i don't have all of them and i have a lot of cards that are not in the top 13,000 but i find them interesting and so i need to know what the value is of my cards not necessarily just the top 13,000 so i I built my own proprietary tool using the eBay API before they shut the API down. Now it's making things more complicated. And so we're, we're doing a bunch of other stuff to help understand price of it. But, you know, that's, that's a pain point for me. I'm curious what other people use for collection management of their own cards. So how do you know what you have and, you know, where it is or what it's worth? Or, you know, is it just looking at a spreadsheet or Google sheet or something like that? Yeah. I mean, I just use a Google sheet. Um, so super manual and definitely wish there were better tools out there, but had checked out card ladder and some of the others. And it was the same issue, um, especially like with baseball, like I'll go pretty deep into like prospect collecting with baseball. And it's like those tools, you know, 
they don't do that. And, and so not being able to track, you know, Hey, this guy got called up and that would be great too. Like some sort of like news service API, like similar to how I think I get like, you know, fantasy football alerts on my phone to just know when, you know, certain events that could impact a card's value are, are happening and surface to me in a programmatic way, as opposed to needing to search like, you know, okay, did the Mariners, you know, call up Kyle Lewis yet or not? And, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I just do manual entry into the, my collection on card ladder and just track it that way. I've, I've kind of set a threshold of I'll put anything that I, that has a current market value of $50 or more. And I'll put that into the, my collection just started doing that like last weekend. So I've got a long way to go, but that's, that's the game plan. But I like that idea, Jake, about the news. And I think I would say that that's something that that card ladder would probably be receptive to because they do have like links at the bottom of like a card page that are relevant to that card. A lot of times it's just like the Cardboard Chronicles page or the TCDB or just any kind of like informational about the card. But I could see them adapting that to the player as well. Anyone else have a process? I use a spreadsheet for now, but hope there's something in the future that uh, will be better, which I'm sure there will be at some point. Absolutely. I think it has to be. There absolutely has to be. Uh, I, I made I a just... database system in PHP years ago that I still use. Darren knows this, but every one of my cards has a barcode on the back. So I have like inventory control, even on my personal collection. And and then I have like autofill search on my whole collection. So I can type in Rodman and then know every Dennis Rodman card I have. I click on it and it tells me the date I bought it, how much I paid for it, what it booked for and Beckett at the time, just as a reference. It has links to see what the eBay sales were on it or are on it currently and stuff like that. So just kind of templatize that, that out there. And then anytime I sell something, I scan the barcode and I enter what it sold for. So I have the date that I bought it and the date that I sold it all logged as well. Uh, for the things I sell, but otherwise it, it allows me just to scan a card, you know, scan the barcode and have every bit of information that I'd want to know about it. Hey, Darren, one, this is Greg, one interesting, if you look at back at a lot of the vertical marketplaces that have come to be fruition over the past 20 years, the account, the ability to manage inventory always comes after the marketplace. And it's usually built by the marketplaces themselves. So whether it's tickets or sneakers and there's very little incentive for the owner of the card to go to a third party to kind of manage inventory because they do it once and then they forget about it and it becomes dead. And until the transactions start coming in, you have to fulfill the order. Otherwise you lose money, you're incentivized. There's no incentive to keep your inventory fully up to date. And so I think, you know, I did it last week and then you'll get to it in six months. And by then you'll be like, oh, there's no win. And so I think that's just been something we've seen in marketplaces, not just card related, but everything. Until there's real-time transaction volume, we are on the hook to deliver or fulfill. It will never be driven by a third party that's not connected to a marketplace. That would be my investor take on that. Greg's a pretty well-known investor in marketplaces and has some deep marketplace experience. But I would think that, to me, it's like, I would want, so if I put my investor hat on, I would think that I'd want to build a collection management tool that could then back into building a marketplace off the collection management tool. Because the data asset is the collection. And I get why marketplaces, I get the, I get the argument you're making around the marketplaces because they control demand and that's where all of us will go. Because if there's demand, there's dollars for our cards, we'll shift them. 
However, I think if you can get a really fascinating, you know, collection management tool built that would make it really easy for Corey and Michael and Dave and Ryan and Karen and Russell and everyone to get their cards into the tool, not have to key every single one of them in. And uh, then you can potentially build both public marketplaces and private marketplaces off the back of a collection management tool. I think that would be like wicked awesome for this space and branching into other places. Maybe that's yeah, I don't disagree. Does, yeah, cool. does anyone know if if PSA uh, has an open API that one could, you know, scan the barcode and then automatically grab the data from that card and pull it into uh, any sort of system? They must have something because maybe not exactly that, but they have something because of the pop counts. They obviously several sites use the pop counts and cite them, although not BGS. I don't see their pop counts literally anywhere. I don't think there's any benefit to us as card owners um, with regard to the barcode. It's simply for PSA to legitimize the grade and the, the, um, the number behind it. Uh, but that's a really interesting take that I haven't heard to date. Yeah, so w why why I, I was asking is because if I have 20 slabs, in theory, I could just use the camera on my phone inside of an app just to boom, scan, 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 scan. And then in theory, it could pull all, all of the slabs into a system. A friend of mine had a company called Miracard. I mean, this is five, six years ago. And he ended up selling it to Beckett and then Beckett, Kind of botched the integration of it but it, it was you know it's just image recognition and it knew the card it wasn't on graded cards but it was on regular ones and then it put the image of the card in your virtual collection on your phone so you could walk around with the app and and be able to show off your cards from your phone which was neat and you also knew every card you had and you didn't have to type it all in yeah so beckett owns it now but it's integrated into their app but you you like yeah it, it's not a very good integration it was much better as a standalone <laughs> so. someone needs to get that right and do it agnostic so you can do sgc beckett psa that would, that would be great i think it gets to the point that people don't actually use it as much as you think they're going to use it hence they don't invest in it i, yeah. I mean beckett beckett realized that we can spend our resources in other places because not enough darren herman's out there who want this and as a result, you choose where you're going to res where you're going to apply your resource. I think to Darren's point, though, having a system that you can then move to something like that, you start with something that you've got, and then when you want to use it for something, like my system was on an island, and then I wanted to start a Shopify site, and so I was able because it's just a database. I was able to export it and import it into Shopify, you know, in about an hour's worth of tweaking what the columns were, you know. So it saved me a lot of time entering every card back in. But most people don't have that use case for it. Just nerds like us, Darren. <laughs> Not everyone's basketball card guy. It seems like trading card database would be a it's some somewhat of a jumping off point in terms of like a comprehensive listing of cards. I, I don't know the people that run. I mean, I think it's just open source, but that seems like a good jumping off point to me. Thank you for listening to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast. We had a ton of fun putting this episode together. And we want to thank you for listening. We want to hear from you. So please don't be a stranger. 
You can reach Darren at at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram or at dherman76 on Twitter. If you want to stop by and check out our collection of cards, listen to other podcasts, or have fun configuring our new product, the Cardboard Box, a set of hand-curated sports cards delivered to your door, come visit MidlifeCrisisCards.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay classy, and let's go Knicks.